welcome to today's episode. My name is Mario Kiriaku, co-founder of Ratio FS, and thank you for joining us here today as we explore the marketplace challenges facing financial services in 2020 and beyond. Today, we'll take a look at the challenges and some of the risks which incumbents are facing in what is proven to be a sector buffeted by fast change and a globally depressed market and the obvious need to conduct as much business digitally as possible. I'm pleased to be joined today by two of my colleagues, Steve Renshaw and Douglas Morris, who over the next 30 minutes or so, I'll be taking the opportunity to quiz on what they see as some of the risks and opportunities that incumbent banks, insurers and payment providers and other various financial services businesses within the sector are facing. Before we dive into today's session, um, I'm going to give my colleagues an opportunity just to introduce themselves in their own words as to um, um, who they are, what uh, what they do, and how they got to this point in their career. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about um, uh, who you are and uh, what, you're, what, what you do. Thank you, Mario. Um, so, I am the strategy director at Ratio FS. Principally, I'm helping our clients to map, connect, and leverage their marketing technology. And I'm doing that with the objective of helping create better digital experiences for their clients. I have an extremely strong empathy for the customer. Um, and I believe that in solving for the customer, there can be an ex- incredibly uh, high return on investment that can be gained from the technology that we're all investing in. From a career perspective, I started out heavily focused on the data side of marketing technology in analytics and business intelligence. Um, but I've since fallen in love with and fallen into financial services, primarily because of the massive quantities of data that's available to be put to use, that there's complex journeys, which means there's always something to improve, and that our clients have typically sophisticated but underutilized technology stacks. So there's lots of exciting features to put to use. Thanks, Doug. Um, My name is Steve Renshaw, and I'm the co-founder of Ratio FS, um, and I work across several of our banking and asset management customers to help set the strategic direction uh, and implementation roadmaps for connecting and leveraging data and technology to drive customer experiences uh, right the way through from acquisition through to retention. Uh, And prior to Ratio, I spent 15 years working a mixture of client, agency, and vendor side across FS and professional services businesses. So that's me. Brilliant. Well, thanks, guys. Looking forward to today's session. Um, so I'm going to dive into the first question, and I think it's it's quite um, relevant um, because I had a look recently at a, um, a chart illustrating the number of fintechs um, um, brands which have come into existence, and it's a bit like the the uh, Martech um, brand chart showing there's you know hundreds and hundreds of um, of competing technologies and firms, and I think it's almost the same in financial services. So. Really interested to hear what you say about the uh, to the first question. So, with where do you see with incumbent banks and insurance companies? They're struggling against the likes of you know, Monzo in consumer bank uh, in consumer banking and Tide in, for example, um, business banking. Uh, where do you see? Why do you see them struggling? And what, what do you see the opportunities for um, incumbents to you know look at what is working, what is not working, and, and apply to their own businesses? So. One of the most interesting things to me is that incumbents are holding kind of a, uh, I'll say a double-edged customer experience sword. On the one side of that sword, they have a lot of comparative advantages. And on the other side, they have some pretty massive disadvantages. If I was to make another great uh, analogy, I would say in physics terms that these incumbents have a bunch of potential energy, but serious struggles in converting that to kinetic energy. 
So one of the most obvious examples to me relates to data um, and the comparative advantage is obviously that incumbents have way more of it. So they've had longer, deeper customer relationships. Those customers have taken more of their products. Although that means that they are more tightly intertwined with the lives of their customers and they just know more about them. But on the flip side, that data that they do have is in a patchwork of different legacy systems that are really quite complex to connect. Some of them obviously built or designed back in the 90s or 80s before there was even um, the concept of the internet was conceptualized. And that means that these incumbents, while they have the data, aren't able to make as as effective use of the data to respond to customer needs uh, and ultimately to create a better client experience. Um, A practical example of that to me is onboarding in banking. We were looking at a study recently about the number of days from start to finish to get an active current account in the UK. And all of the challenger banks obviously nailed it in that study, but only a small number of legacy banks. Uh, And it was quite interesting also that the disparity was massive between how the legacy banks performed. So HSBC, it took 36 days from the point of applying through to a current account actually being open and usable. Whereas Barclays, also an incumbent, it took just two days, almost 20 20 times faster. So what that demonstrates to me is that whatever problems do exist, they're not actually insurmountable. Another example where these um, incumbents are struggling to compete is around vision, mission, and culture. So I would offer Monzo as an example here with their stance on ethical banking. Uh, To me, that's something that incumbents are probably not going to adopt, um, not try to adopt, and even if they did, would struggle very much to do so because there's so much organizational inertia. Just to offer one example of where that plays out in the real world, um, one tenet of Monzo's ethical banking vision is around transparency. They have an objective that fees should be easier to understand and less punitive. Obviously, there's massive daylight between that as an idea and the real-world business practices of incumbent FS organizations. So it would require an absolutely monumental shift for that vision to be set from the top down, let alone everything else it entails in actually executing on it, like completely changing business practices, policies, systems, technology, and so on. Um, I have a personal anecdote recently around this. Um, I had been, I'm a Lloyd's customer and had been using my Lloyd's card when I was traveling uh, overseas from the UK, but now I fully adopted TransferWise. So Lloyd's were charging me a 3% conversion fee on payments along with 50 pence per, um, per card payment that I made overseas, whereas TransferWise charged the real exchange rate. When I realized how much Lloyd's were charging me, it permanently degraded my perception of them. And I can tell you they're way less likely to retain me as a customer, even just for standard, um, I guess, current account banking in the UK. So ultimately, I think that that those transparent and constrained fees are actually a feature of many of these challenges. And it's the antithesis of how legacy institutions have approached their customer relationships historically and in the near future, in my view. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd add to that to say, I mean, obviously it didn't take too long for the big banks to recognize the threat of challenges. to quote one of our own banking clients, um, it's it's a bit like trying to turn an oil tanker. In fact, I think it was Megan Kaywood who joined Barclays from Starling last year who said it was like trying to steer a battleship being chased by speedboats. Um, so there's the challenge of people, process and technology for starters, um, but also the politics of trying to start a challenger brand within a traditional bank brings it with it all sorts of you know hurdles to success. People aren't necessarily bought into the idea and they see the investment going into tech as a threat perhaps to their own territory, but the, the processes around delivery that's still an issue. So trying to coordinate the right resources across product, marketing, um, customer, infrastructure, compliance, 
uh, and also diff different business lines is enormously complex, um, even for a traditional digital project, which is why um, banks are investing in completely separate infrastructures and teams to deliver their challenger offerings. But the side effect of that, of course, is that there's still an awful lot of experience within the traditional structure. Um, and a lot of process is there for a reason. Um, and you can see how that how it pans out badly with someone like um, Bo, the RBS challenger that closed down, um, where they had that separation, but it was still hampered by a lot of bugs. Um, and it never really had the buy-in it needed either. And it was treated, uh, I like this term, uh, flanker brand rather than something that was core to their retail business. So um, in the end, they decided to shift resources into uh, Metal instead, which is their business banking offering. But I guess the other piece of the, the puzzle is the technology. Um, partly the data connectivity issue, um, partly the separation of infrastructure, but also having the right kit in place to make it all work. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to build a completely separate technical offering, but what they do need to do is overcome challenges such as the onboarding experience that Doug was mentioning there. Um, and with some banks, as he says, you know, you're talking days, if not weeks to open an account compared to a few hours or a couple of days with a challenger. Um, so there's a lot of processes in play there as well. But often we see it's something as simple as just joining up the onboarding experience to get that customer on board in the first place, which is a quick win. Um, and it's that acquisition cycle where I think the challenges have really excelled. Um, and it's only a handful of banks, Barclays, Lloyds and so on, who have really managed to crack it uh, in response. So uh, in my view, it's a really interesting opportunity. I don't think it's getting anywhere near enough attention or getting done properly. But you can see the stats. Um, if you look at someone like Lloyds, they've increased the number of active current accounts accounts um, year on year, but also the value of those accounts. Um, so, they're, so they're not just getting the volume, but also, you know, the money in those accounts and, and higher worth um, customers. And, and if you look at their tech spend, it's about 20%. So it looks like, you know, that kind of approach is paying dividends for someone like that. Um, and especially with the onboarding experience, I guess if you're, if you're thinking, thinking along the lines of 70 to 80% of customers who've already made a mental decision to, to, to go with you as a bank or as an insurance company, um, by the point that they get to you, to your mobile website, to your website, to your app, um, then the, the onboarding experience is key. Um, and there's a lot of resistance that we see among our clients, um, especially when it comes to things like APIs, uh, people like Jumio for identity, identity verification. Um, I think where banks have been averse to sharing any of that onboarding process with, with any third party. And so they try to do things in house or they, or they just maintain the status quo. Um, so that, that's, that's one thing that's holding them back. The other thing is um, challenges tend to go after niches. Um, so whether that's uh, the sort of Monzo style, you know, tracking what categories of spend or whether it's uh, offering high interest rate uh, deposits or low cost international transfers. Uh, and they, they're very good at putting teams around those journeys to optimize them and make them as good as possible. Um, whereas banks are trying to grapple with multiple different business lines. And that's often a challenge because you're trying to do too much at once. Uh, there's not enough focus. You don't have the right team to support it. So there needs to be almost that challenging mentality. Um, but, but I would also just quickly go back to the, my point I made earlier about people, process and technology and the sort of oil tank and battleship analogy. Um, getting the right people in the room with a shared mission and with the right sponsorship is probably the biggest hurdle. Um, the, irony, the irony we find is that all the expertise is actually in the bank, but they don't have to bring it all together into an agile model. Um, so we worked with one banking client where we implemented, for example, a Scrum of Scrum's agile model. Uh, which isn't perfect, but what it does do is clearly govern the delivery roles and responsibilities uh, and also KPIs for a successful program and make sure that, that people's time is spent as efficiently as clarity as possible without being onerous. Um, 
and the separation of technology is also an important one. Cloud is driving a lot of the challenge of banking, um, trying to get away from legacy transactional platforms, but the process of getting that improved within a, improving the bank's IT um, structure and processes can be pretty arduous. I think uh, one of our clients took five years to get Azure approved. Um, so there's definitely challenges there as well. It really needs that executive sponsorship and not being treated like a flanker brand, and that's the underlying uh, the underlying investment. You know, is going to be key long term. Okay, thank you. Um, a couple of interesting points, then. It kind of leads into the next question, and I appreciate some of the stuff you've mentioned. Is probably feeds into this the answer to this as well. But someone said to me recently that a lot of what the challenge of fintechs are offering in terms of um, customer experience and um, customer service isn't necessarily rocket science. There's lots of good companies out there delivering a good digital experience, but is there something unique about the culture of a bank or a large insurer? Which is preventing them from offering that 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 similar service. So, when we talk about the culture of an organisation, I I think that we need to recognise that we're really talking about the beliefs, values, actions, behaviours of the the humans that are working for that organisation, because it's really their their culture that's affecting what's happening. And one of the things that we've seen that can constrain how much of an entrepreneurial culture that um, financial services employees can adopt is the amount of process and governance frameworks that they need to operate within. So what we're seeing is that in most cases, these processes are an impediment to innovation and especially radical innovation. They are a constraint in a real sense because they are literally preventing you from doing too much outside of the box, so to speak. And they're also a constraint in more of a metaphorical sense because they impact perception of how you should be acting as an employee. But what we feel is that process can actually, and the ability to adopt strong processes can actually be a competitive advantage when it comes to innovation. But in order for that to happen, we need to look at it from a different angle and look at how we can design processes that support rather than suppressing innovation. So what we find working with financial services incumbents is actually, um, as I mentioned, that they're already awesome at developing and adhering to process. The battle is in working out which of those new processes are required to be developed, which will actually drive innovation um, and support fostering that culture. So a couple of examples. Um, One is looking at your hiring process. Do you have uh, processes within your hiring process that are finding people that are innovative, innovative thinkers and so on. Are there specific personality attributes or experiences that you would want that sort of person to have? And do you have a method of interviewing, like specific questions that you could be asking that are consistently finding people with those attributes? For many incumbent FS organizations, the answer is no. And yet that's an example of where um, doing what uh, that FS company is already good at, which is developing a very good process, could lead to more innovative people being hired and presumably uh, allow more innovation to happen. And then, of course, once you've implemented those new hiring practices, you can start to measure how consistently they're being adhered to, how effectively they're working at bringing in innovative people within different um, areas of the organisation and in doing so, work out where you still need to work harder. Another example is in performance reviews, personal objectives and so on. So... Um, innovation can be something that people are rated on. They can be given specific targets for it. There could be an incentive structure in place for people to innovate. In many cases, that's obviously not happening. And yet, again, it's an example of where 
we can have a process that we follow that will actually result in more innovation rather than less innovation. My final example there would be around cross-functional innovation and how a bank looks at facilitating that and what systems are created to support that behavior. So bringing it back to what I was saying earlier about um, a 30-day account opening time, that's clearly a problem which is going to require some pretty disruptive innovation to fix and not just innovation from one person or one team, but from multiple teams reporting to uh, multiple different areas of the business. So the question is, what is the operating model that can be implemented, which allows that innovation to happen? And um, Steve touched on a little bit of that with the, the Scrum of Scrum models that we're looking at implementing. Um, so bringing it back to the question, I actually think that um, incumbents have all of the raw ingredients to be even more innovative than their challenges. However, it requires a pretty fundamental shift to transform what might be viewed as relative weaknesses into actual competitive advantages. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I would echo what Doug says there. I, I would also say scale and resources is where um, is where in, incumbent or traditional players really kind of benefit. Um, what banks are great at is personalized service for a customer who's got multiple and sometimes you know quite complex needs. So a, a traditional player can bank you right across the board, um, which not many challenges challenger brands can. Um, you know they can service your current account lending, credit cards, uh, mortgages, uh, and if you're a business, you know business export finance and a whole bunch of other complex things that a business needs to survive. Um, and for those kind of transactions or for those kind of customers, there's generally always a person you can get to on the phone if you need them. Um, and challenges are starting to move into this market, but it, it needs a ton of cash. And there's a whole regulatory compliance challenge um, to overcome to get to that point. So I think I think we're still a little way off that level of land grab at the moment. But you know, I read the other day that the average account value of a challenger bank is only about 350 quid um, for the retail business. So most customers are still dual banked for the bigger needs. But I mean, there are some people who who do um, do sort of, if you like, Unibank. Um, but there was a connection of mine on LinkedIn uh, who was uh, bemoaning their experience with a challenger bank the other day. Um, so they've been, I think, locked out of their accounts since May and they've been struggling to get support. Uh, to, to fix the issue and, and they were basically being passed from person to person live chat and never actually managed to get through to an actual person uh, i won't name the bank but they have about 1500 staff um and it's those kind of areas where where the, the cracks start to show um it's it's where they haven't got the level of support they don't have the scale to react quickly when things go wrong um and especially for a business in his case that was that was quite detrimental he had suppliers to pay he couldn't get access to his funds and there was no there was no real support so so that's where the sort of scale is an advantage the, the other is obviously regulation um so goldman sachs uh, they launched marcus uh, and that was a raging success um, but they had to close for applications uh, and that was because they reached their 25 billion um, deposit limit so they were getting into territory where they would have to ring fence and be subject to a whole load of new compliance um, and of course, what happens then is that all that new custom that they would have otherwise had then disappears off to a rival. Uh, and so the cycle continues. So, you know, the next bank then acquires those new customers until they reach the limit. And then it goes, in, it goes on and goes on. Um, traditional players aren't as exposed to that regulatory problem. Um, so they can keep growing as well as cross-selling all those other services that, that I spoke about earlier. Um, you know, that, that they already have, they, that, that infrastructure is already there. Um, but of course, they still have the same challenge, uh, which is how do you make all that available through a nice, friendly app experience in the same way that challenger banks have, have you know, made current accounts um, you know, infinitely more accessible through apps. So they need to overcome those challenges as well. Um, but there is, there's people doing it really, really well. Um, 
there's a really interesting, uh, I, I like to call it <laughs> an interesting player in the challenging the challenger space, um, to coin a phrase, but that is Wells Fargo in the States, um, one of the biggest banks over there. So they're using um, their existing breadth of uh, you know, capability, technology people, and also obviously funds um, to try and drive itself forwards. And they created a program, I think it's, it's called the Artificial Intelligence Program Bank. Um, but essentially what that does is leverages people already within the bank um, to identify um, what they want to achieve and, and how to do it. Um, so the business team, uh, this is more of an organizational process thing, but the, the business team scopes out the use cases where data, intelligence and personalization could drive value. Then the data team looked at where that data sits and how it could be applied. And the technology team looked at the kit requires a deliver it, the technology requires a deliver it. Um, and as that's evolved over time, it's allowed them to achieve personalization at scale by creating tens of different models that take into account a multitude of uh, customer triggers, which in turn powers the experience of that customer with the most relevant messaging or product content. But again, that's where a traditional bank can really capitalize uh, on the use of data because they have so much more to offer beyond just a current account. So I guess it goes back to my point at the beginning about being able to service those complex customer needs where a challenger bank can't necessarily do that. Thank you. And I appreciate it. There isn't one simple answer to this. I think you made a point that challenges tend to focus on one specific slice of the um, um, financial services products which are delivered to customers. And of course, you know, uh, a large um, incumbent like a bank might be providing dozens and dozens of different products and services. So it's, I suppose it's difficult very much to prioritize which service or product um, they should pour their resources into, which kind of leads into uh, the next question really is around the very nature of challenges are that they're, they're startups and obviously they have the advantage of building everything from the ground up from you know technology they choose the processes to hiring people and it's all obviously fresh but obviously an incumbent doesn't have that advantage and i liked your um quote of the um battleship chased by by speedboats so i think it's quite quite apt but in terms of incumbents, what do you think is more important in terms of trying to close that customer experience gap? Is technology their ally or are we looking more at, you know, optimizing your know, people's and processes that sit around that? So um, just to take the contrary view, I am of the firm view that all of those are critical boxes to tick. So you're not going to succeed unless you have the technology unless you have the right people behind it and unless they know how to operate the technology. To frame it in a slightly different way, I would relate the question to one of my famous and fantastic analogies, uh, this time from modern military strategy, which is in short that a good plan has ways, means, and ends designed. So what we're often seeing in many sectors, but definitely financial services, is that a lot of focus is put on just part of that question, which is the means. And it is true that it's the sexy part of the question. From a marketing perspective, the means to achieve things, we're looking at marketing technology like customer data platforms, personalization, marketing automation tools, advanced analytics, and so on. Um, and of course, these products are all sold with amazing case studies showing how transformational they can be when applied, whether to business outcomes or to, to the customer experience. Um, I would ask how often those technology products actually deliver what the vendors sold them on. And uh, I would answer myself there that that is not very often. We have one um, 
person that we work with within a large commercial bank who says that they have all of the gear and no idea, um, which I think is a fantastic phrase. And they, they really do have uh, the top top line of every piece of marketing technology, but that doesn't mean they're actually um, they're doing too much with it. Um, and so we need to look beyond just the means or the technology uh, because does just buying the technology mean that customer problems start getting magically solved? Unfortunately, we're not at that stage when it comes to marketing technology yet. Um, all it's done is that we've acquired the means to achieve something. We still need to put it to use. So one of the big problems that I see is that a lot of the time the objectives or the ends in my analogy um, to which that technology should be put to work are not being well-defined. And if they are defined, it's in terms of objectives that are too far abstracted from the specific problems that that piece of technology is meant to solve. Uh, and that means that the users who are meant to be putting the technology to use don't necessarily understand how, like, why they should be using it. So for an example, an objective like uh, delivering 10 million pounds of incremental revenue within 12 months, um, that's pretty meaningless and way too abstracted from uh, the frontline marketer who's trying to understand how that new system can make them work more effectively or efficiently. Um, in my view, as I already intimated, the objectives for the technology should at least partially be framed around customer challenges as well as the, the objectives you're trying to achieve as a business. So if we can define, if we can better define the ends um, and we have the means, we now have a thing to use and a way to use it. But uh, in most organizations, we're still going to be left with a capability deficit because we have people that might know what they would like to do with it, but don't know how to make it happen. That could be in a literal sense, they have the lack of technical skills, or it could be that perhaps a framework for its use and proper governance hasn't been established. That's also where um, strong agency relationships can come in handy to supplement skill gaps, help to upskill internal people and really role model what best practice looks like when it comes to that technology. When we're working with technology, uh, with, with financial services organizations around this technology, we're often advising them to look at it investing as least, at least as much in the people and strategy around the technology as the, strat as the technology itself. Um, and that is often not happening sadly and, and subsequently we have a lot of technology that's sitting there collecting dust um, and not actually being used to good effect so in my view you really can't separate people and process technology or clear objectives from effective um, customer experience transformation let's say they are all intertwined yeah i think from my point of view there's still a huge disconnect within banks when it comes to data and single view of the customer um, the data is all there um, but but the single view of the customer isn't um, I suppose one of our clients last year about their KPIs and one of them was customer retention um, but they weren't measuring that consistently so you could have a lapsed current account customer but they still had a mortgage um, so so what you know there's no definition in that case of, of what a lapsed customer or, a, or a, you know a customer who's left the bank actually means um, and the way those customers are marketed to as well is done completely inside those with different business lines and so on um, you know the online transactional experience is generic um, so the challenge is getting all that data into one place getting it into a consistent schema and making it usable by teams around the business um, so data, data really to me is not being used properly uh, and that's because it's being held on these different platforms and different teams um, 
that said, there are banks which are creating uh, data lakes um, or otherwise, you know, connecting that data together. I think you know, UBS are running an extensive data lake program at the moment. And uh, to go back to Megan Carwood at Barclays, um, she talks a lot about how they're using the Adobe stack to combine uh, internal um, partner uh, and also third party data. Um, so, for example, they look at lifestyle and travel preferences to gauge if they should target a customer with an airline branded credit card. Um, they're also, I think they've gone through a program of hooking up their transactional and marketing data to, to tailor that digital and app experience. Um, just trying to get, you know, the right content and the right products in front of the users that are relevant to them. I mean, if you think about it, around 95% of the users are coming to the website or app to do a job. So, you know, transactional banking, making a payment, checking a balance. So it, it makes sense to use that real estate to target them with relevant content. Um, in fact, actually Barclays has also invested in a US challenger bank called Cogni, but the real focus seems to be on connectivity between different products and how that can be best used to support their customers. So that's, that's where their focus area is. Thank you. I mean, I suppose one of the things which is fascinating about fintechs is that from the outside, certainly, they, 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 the perception is that they plugged into an understanding of what the consumer wants from a financial services product in a way that the main incumbents have clearly missed you know we've seen from you know high profile copycat failures that 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 you know trying to replicate like for like isn't necessarily the you know the best best way forward do you think that banks and insurers really have a, a good handle on and know that their customers you know what they want from them and you know ultimately what their underlying competitive advantage is so the simple answer i would say is no but I will elaborate. <laughs> uh, I think that we can actually abstract that conversation about customer focus um, and customer understanding from financial services completely and just talk about the tendencies of smaller versus larger organizations. Jeff Bezos at Amazon last year said something very pertinent to this, I think, which is that he believed Amazon could and maybe even would fail, that it would go bankrupt, um, as with most lar large organizations in history. So the point that he was making at the time or trying to make is that one of the possible reasons for this um, demise that Amazon could face is the tendency of large organizations to become more inwardly focused and that rather than continuing to be obsessed with solving customer problems as they were when they were at their foundation stages, they lose sight of what the customer, um, what the customer really needs and is wanting. Some of the reasons for that are pretty self-evident probably. It's much easier when you're smaller to be customer obsessed. Um, for example, as you grow, more and more layers get introduced between the people making decisions and the customers who are affected by those decisions. We spoke about when you're small, the scope of your service offering is, na is narrower. Potentially, you just have one product that you're taking to market for one type of customer. And it's pretty easy to be aligned as an organization behind the needs of that customer when there's such simplicity. Compare that to um, a massive incumbent financial services organization that might have hundreds of customer types and propositions. It's just inherently a way more complex system to manage and understand. And it's kind of uh, easy to understand then that without obsessive focus, as Jeff Bezos is trying to instill at Amazon, um, why without that focus, um, you, you can lose sight of the customer. I would say that that complexity also makes it hard for the customers themselves. We completed a user research piece for a B2B global bank um, last year who have hundreds of different propositions in each market that they're present in, each regional market. 
And they had a challenge where they were trying to reorient their website experience towards the SME market, which they were considering to be a key growth opportunity at that point. We did some user testing where we gave users quite common scenarios like finding loans or credit cards, and we found some pretty startling things. So firstly, uh, actually, most of those users that were putting themselves in the mindset of a small business didn't even think that the bank serviced SME customers, let alone could they find out how to complete their task. And we uh, did a comparative exercise where we compared the performance of the bank website that we were working with versus their competitors around the world. And I can tell you from an incumbent perspective, there weren't too many uh, where, where users could find it straightforward how to complete um, such simple tasks. To me, what is of the utmost importance there is creating personalized experiences. When you have a business that complex who is trying to serve as many different um, needs and customer types, you really need to tailor the experience so you're presenting the most relevant information upfront rather than, uh, rather than asking users to go and find it. And you also need to examine things like the terminology you're using so that you're aligning that with your customer's view of the world and what their challenges are rather than speaking bank out, um, so to speak. Um, so to um, bring it back to what you were saying um, and to look at some other examples um, of where uh, banks are trying to do this, um, one would be Bo, uh, the startup from NetWest. And they failed for a set of reasons that are pretty multifaceted. But one of the reasons they failed, in my view, is that they genuinely didn't do a better job of solving for the customer. They tried to enter a marketplace that was already pretty crowded and they didn't bring enough that is actually genuinely net new in terms of um, those problems they're solving. And you really need to be aiming to solving customer problems even better than the next brand in that customer's consideration set. Um, otherwise, why bother? The other thing we need to consider is that we aren't starting from scratch in financial services. History matters, uh, even if we are talking about a new subsidiary like Bo. The fact is that historically, banks have not at all been customer focused and that really matters. Their customers know that. To me, I would liken this to Uber eating the breakfast of taxi companies globally. So taxi companies were the entrenched provider for decades. And with all that time and money and resources, they did very little to try and improve the customer experience or really solve customer problems uh, any better. Those companies lost market share big time. And while they're now trying to better leverage technology and introduce their own improved experience, it brings a bit hollow to, to consumers. Uh, on, on the banking front, uh, some statistics. A 2016 um, trust in profession survey in Europe found that banks and bank clerks are trusted by just 42% of Europeans. And a YouGov study in the UK in 2017, I believe, found that only 55% of Britain's trust banks and only 36% think that those banks work in the customer's interest. So what we need to recognise and be realistic about is that customers aren't just going to take it on faith that you are now focused on their needs if that hasn't been their experience historically. Uh, and I think that means that we um, don't, like, it's not just going to be enough for incumbents to solve some customer problems a little bit better than they were already doing or make a half-hearted effort towards repositioning themselves to be focused on customers. Uh, these problems need to be solved way better than the than the challenges are in order to work past that historical baggage in people's minds, at least in a, in a B2C context. Yeah, I think, I mean, also, you know, the FinTech or the rise of FinTechs, if you want to, again, call it a phrase, is an interesting change as well. I mean, th these large tech companies that have existing relationships with customers and, and they've already got deep pockets, um, 
for example, Google, um, I think, is launching a checking account this year, although that may be delayed. Um, they partnered with Citibank on that. Uh, they've obviously had someone like Google pay for a long time, but they've never really had access to the rich transactional data that underpins it. Um, so that's a logical move. Um, likewise, with Apple, um, they've got an extremely loyal customer base and they launched the, the, the Apple credit card with Goldman Sachs. Uh, they've got about 3 million customers in the US now and they're rolling out slowly, but that's probably not a bad thing. Uh, they've, they've had a few hiccups along the way. So, you know, even with someone like that, it's not necessarily a smooth ride. Uh, and then you've got the other the other entrants like PwC, um, who are, they're developing a digital banking ecosystem. So they've got ready-made um, APIs they're already hooked into. Um, so that can usually sort of almost have an off-the-shelf backing, uh, banking infrastructure. Uh, and with someone like that, you also have a huge backer with a wealth of deep financial services experience and a lot of existing relationships already. Um, so, so they'll be doing, you know, some, so I would think some land grabbing as well um, from other players in that space. So I think there's a lot of interesting things happening where actually the main competition is not necessarily from challenger banks but, uh, or challenger brands, but more from these powerhouses who have the technology and deep pockets and, and the data backgrounds uh, to offer new and, I guess, more compelling products and services. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Because I was, I was talking to someone recently and they said they were more concerned with, you know, the likes of, you know, Amazon opening a, um, a bank than they were necessarily with fintech. So um, I suppose for you, for you, Doug, I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about a lot today around, you know, the rise of fintechs and the threat that fintechs face, you know, face um, to uh, incumbents face from fintech, the rise of fintechs. But do you see a greater threat in terms of marketplace disruption coming from, you know, I suppose the big U.S technology companies, the likes of Google, Amazon, obviously Apple with, um, you know, likes of Apple Card and Apple Pay. I mean, even just purely from from a resource perspective, absolutely. Apple have, I believe, hundreds of millions of pounds of cash in the bank. They could um, absolutely pose a massive threat to the incumbent financial services organizations. Um, But in addition to that, they are completely intertwined with the li- with the lives of their customers. Um, from from the point of view, for example, of of Apple or Google, where you're using their products on almost a daily basis, and they have a very intimate understanding about um, about who you are and what your needs are, and so on. Um, Steve, what do you think about that question? I guess I sort of covered a lot of it in, in, in my previous. Comments really. Um, it, it's it's an interesting space. I think you know one one of the biggest changes that's happened um, is 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 the introduction of, of APIs. You know things like Jumio for online identity identity verification. Um, along, but I think again one of the biggest challenges that hasn't really. I don't think it's even really exposed itself yet. Um, it, it is definitely the, the rise of um, big tech. Um, because they already have an existing customer base. They have all that data about those customers already. And once they get their hands on financial information, then they become themselves these sort of big powerhouses um, to, to attack those customers and, and you know, make the most of that market that they already have captured. So, so yeah, I think, I think it's, it's an, it, in the last couple of years, it's been an unexpected new entrant into that market and it's going to make, I think, banks' lives quite uncomfortable. Even um, I was I read recently that Google had made an acquisition or partially acquired fit part of Fitbit. And just like from an insurance perspective, for example, if they have data about the health of their um, potential customers on an almost daily basis, then they could do so much to tailor the premiums and accurately price risk um, compared to 
compared to the more traditional or incumbent insurance companies that are quite um, quite far removed from the daily lives of their of their customers and prospective customers. So it, it's definitely an interesting space to watch. Thank you. I'd like to finish with one final question. Um, what would be your you know, final takeaway, a piece of advice for marketers looking to navigate the challenges that face them in the you know years ahead in, in terms of you know navigating the opportunities and risks that you know face financial services. So I think while we're while we're looking to the years ahead, we need to start with what we can do right now. Um, and my takeaways would be firstly that if if you want to be customer focused like the challenges, then you actually need to know your customer. And I, of course, I don't mean that in a regulatory sense. To have any hope of improving an experience for someone, um, firstly, we need to adopt a common understanding within our organization of who the people are and what they're actually experiencing. So some ways that we can start to do that um, from today, really, are establishing personas and journey maps. Personas are, let's say, fictional people that are representative of key audience segments and journey maps illustrate what those personas are doing over time. In particular, the journey maps are pretty helpful to flesh out like what interactions each user is having with your organization, um, what touch points they're interacting with, what their purpose is, what their frustrations are, and so on. And good journey maps really allow us to identify opportunities to improve the experience by finding where those frustrations and pain points are and looking how we can bring technology to bear to, um, to solve some of them. So within those journeys, within those journey maps, you can also aim to map out what's happening from a backstage perspective, so to speak, at each of those journey steps. So if if the persona is called John and the journey step is that he's applying for a product and being sent an email, mapping out how that's actually executed, what teams and technology are involved, um, and that'll help obviously to start to understand um, whether there's whether there's any other parts of the business that you need to align for align with rather in order to um, in order to solve a, a problem or improve the experience at that point. I just also say as far as these personas and journey maps, it's perfectly fine to start out with prototypes um, and and refine them once more information becomes available to you because I often see and hate to see that perfection can be the enemy of of the good. And that is that we just don't get started because we can't do it perfectly. Um, it's definitely better to get started and refine as we go. And my other takeaway kind of along the same lines is that um, we should start small even while we're planning big. So there's a whole heap of merit in making many incremental improvements to the customer experience alongside the more infrequent transformational ones. When you're making those small incremental improvements, you're risking way less and you're also gaining learnings that can inform the more radical improvements that you're doing later on. When you're making small improvements, you're probably less likely to get bogged down in the quagmire of internal politics um, because you're going to be doing things that naturally touch less of the journey and, and, uh, and therefore less of the business outside of your own team. So I would say just um, one thing you could do today is just to pick just one journey step for one persona that touches just one channel and start there. Um, don't obviously keep in mind what the dream for that would be, what the what the um, 13 star customer experience would be, as we like to say. But um, but don't necessarily hold back just because you can't achieve that immediately. Wouldn't it be great if the public website homepage reflected for a visitor that had been in the branch, what their interaction was, what product they were interested in? Absolutely. But you probably don't have that data in place already. 
it would be a massive step up for that customer um, still, I'm sure, if the homepage even just reflected what you know about them digitally. And for that, you probably already have all the stuff in place that you need to to act today. I guess to, to, to follow on from what Doug's saying now, I've probably got a couple more takeaways um, just, to, just to wrap up. I mean, one of those... Once you define the customer proposition, you know, what, defining what it is you want to address, uh, for example, the onboarding experience you mentioned earlier, um, and defining the experience. But then the next stage, I guess, is then looking at the data. So <clears throat> where is it stored? Who owns it? How, it, how can it be connected? How can it be used to support the proposition? What technology does it sit on? What hurdles are we going to face if we want to try and stitch it together? Who needs to be involved? Um, so don't I would say don't try to do everything at once, um, you know, for that acquisition or onboarding journey, it might be something as simple as stitching the, the web and email user profiles together to automate the personalization of that journey um, as a reasonably quick win. But in the long term, it could be, you know, something completely, completely ambitious at this point, such as simply a separate infrastructure model, cloud-based services and so on. So, so, so it's important to understand where that supporting data sits and how it can be used. And then I guess finally, it's, it's that team and working model. We talked earlier about the Scrum Scrums model a couple of times. Um, that's a really great way of bringing stakeholders at different points of the project and in, into it, um, whether that's sponsorship, management, delivery, uh, different business lines, and having the governance of the program clearly defined. Um, so it's a really nice way of doing that. And I would say, finally, that that part of that is ensuring the right KPIs, reporting, and customer support are also in place. I mean, you, we also, we see a lot of challenger brands who, who, like I said, with my LinkedIn contact the other day, they, 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 run, they run into problems when, when problems occur, uh, when they're trying to support the customer. So this is a holistic approach um, that the banks need to take. Um, and part of showing ROI is going to be showing a positive impact on the customer as well as revenues and new leads. Um, so that program needs to have structure around it and a clear roadmap. And it is doable, um, but it does require, you know, that, that, that sponsorship and buy-in and it needs to be manageable, um, you know, a bite-sized chunk of POC, something like that. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think that brings us to the end of today's session. I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, I've been busy scribbling a bunch of notes uh, for, for future episodes. So thank you very much, um, uh, Douglas and Steve, for, for your input on today's um, uh, topic around you know, the 2020 landscape and financial services. Um, so thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of it today. So thank you very much for everyone who joined us today. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.